Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Around the Coin. Today's guest, John Lunn, the founder CEO of Gravy. Gravy is headquartered in California, about 50 employees. They've raised $27.5 million as a cloud payment orchestration platform. Uh, John, previous to Gravy, joined PayPal in 2006. He was employee number four in the UK, which is now well over 2,000 employees. Uh, he later helped build out PayPal Ventures, raising $350 million and watching thousands of pitch decks and founders all in payments. Uh, John is one of the most knowledgeable people when it comes to the global payments market. We chatted about how the different countries and markets operate, what's going on behind the scenes, and what Gravy's plans are for the future. At the end, we touched on a little sci-fi and macro and crypto. So hope you enjoy as much as I did. Here is John Lunn. John, uh, thanks so much for hopping on, man. I'm really excited to chat with you. Uh, so maybe we'll just kick it off with a little bit of your background. One thing that stuck out to me, I was really excited to chat with you about is your experience at PayPal, both being the fourth employee in the UK office, now over 2000, and then running the PayPal Ventures. Uh, I think you did that for about four or five years prior to starting Gravy. What was the, what would the, uh, what was the escalation process like from four to 2000? And then how did, what, how did you get into PayPal Ventures? Like, why was that a compelling strategic decision for the company? Yeah, so look, I started before, um, before I joined PayPal, I was like, uh, I joined a company called CyberSource back in 1997, which is like the first internet payment company, I'd say. So I was kind of right at the, uh, the, the edge of the seam there trying to add, uh, work out how the hell we're going to all take payments online. And I think that experience from CyberSource and then uh, the startup I did after that, Fastmark, kind of rolled into PayPal. So I, I ended up uh, at PayPal as, you know, they're basically trying to break into markets outside North America. So they, they needed someone who got how the hell payments worked and the technology at it. And they, you know, the other three were commercial and I was the technical person. So kind of brought me in to make it real and, uh, you know, signed up the first class customer we ever had outside eBay and, and took it from then. So it was, uh, I mean, totally different when I joined as a, as I said, that was like pretty small us team a tiny european international team um and then as we uh and as we grew by the time i left i think it was like sixty thousand people so it was a totally different type of company um and it's you know some things are great in big companies and but um definitely speed is not <laughs> you see speed exponentially changing 
going opposite as you grow, just decisions get harder um, and, and things just, just get different. And I think I quickly realized I preferred the smaller, more nimble operation. Did, did they quickly move to international expansion? Like how, how big were they in the States when they, before they moved out to uh, Europe? I don't know how many people there were, but we were in like one building in a small office. So it was, oh, it was pretty small. Pretty, yeah. pretty, uh, it was pretty small in, in total. And I think it was kind of a year or so after, after eBay um, bought the company. So there was still a bit of transition going on. Kind of the, the, the uh, PayPal mafia had kind of already was moving out or had moved out. So it was a very, it was this changing company and being part of a big organization like eBay was, was interesting. I think, you know, where weird decisions were made, like putting where we put the UK office was based on, uh, on where sort of CEOs lived kind of thing. So it was just those small decisions at the beginning, make a big difference to how a company and where a company grows. Hmm. Is that the same headquarters as it is now? Yeah. Yeah, it stayed there. But, yeah, it's one of the biggest employees in the town now. So. Interesting. Interesting. And are they now the largest peer to peer payments provider across Europe, Asia? Like, where, where's what's their general footprint now? I know people refer to them almost ubiquitously when they think of peer to peer payments. Yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I don't know the exact numbers. It's been a yeah. couple of years since the left, but um, I know in Europe uh, for sure, in the US, obviously. Um, along yeah. you, know, you have Venmo to it, it gets super big. I think Asia, you've obviously got got China that throws everything one way, and India that throws things the other way, and those are traditionally not strong markets. So. And then when you ran the venture department there, uh, mm-hmm. what was the conversation like debating whether or not to do this in the first place? I'm 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 always kind of interested in like you see Google Ventures. I don't know if they were the first, but I think of them as one of the most prominent. Where it's like bolting a venture arm on the side of a for-profit business where typically it's been, you know, I think of like Kleiner, Andreessen now, Sequoia, more old school. Like these are just independent funds, independent investors raising money. But now it seems more common that when companies reach, I don't know, 100 million in venture funding, a couple thousand people, they tend to bolt out a venture arm. Is this, is it typically looked at as like R&D for... M&A activity, or is it looked at as a, a revenue line? Or like, what are they? So it, 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 it really depends. So we kind of went through an evolution with, with PayPal Ventures, but um, I mean, there's some companies that look at it sort of an R&D type thing. Other companies that look at sort of a default, it's how they do innovation when they can't innovate. Um, and, and other companies look at it as a way to actually generate revenue, et cetera. So I think different, different motivations. I know when we started PayPal Ventures, um, you know, myself and Jeremy, we, we went and talked to every corporate VC we could find in the Bay and, uh, and really I tried to learn from them of what they did right, what they did wrong, how they ended up. And we came out very strongly with a view that this was a way to, to learn um, uh, about what was going on. It, we, our motivations right at the beginning were not really financial. Obviously the plan was not to lose money, but the plan was to, to, to use this as a way as really like, um, meeting and, and financially participating in with startups that were going to work with us. And you obviously you've got a huge user base that the paper has and, uh, and the marketing teams, et cetera, et cetera. And that's very attractive to, to a startup. They get access to all of that. Um, you know, potential, and we wanted to participate in the upside of you know as a as a company came to came to work with PayPal, the upside for them. We wanted to participate in that as well, and I think we we had a very clear division 
between ventures and M&A. We didn't want to give the impression that if we invested in you, it meant we were going to buy you at some stage because not, not for the obvious reasons, actually for the opposite. If you are a great company, we invest in you, but there's not a fit with PayPal strategy that basically could indicate to the market that you're not very good. And that wouldn't be fair on the companies who invest in it. So we always had a, a, a line between us, like an investment and an M&A were not the same. PayPal did acquire a couple of companies, um, just as, a, as, as, as they worked more, uh, the venture investments worked more and more with, with the PayPal, uh, you know, product teams, they realized there was a fit and then acquisitions happened, but many other companies, you know, uh, worked with PayPal and then, then went off to be huge, like, you know, companies like Plaid, et cetera. So there are, there are a lot of, um, both sides and, you know, as we evolved, we got very good at it. And I think by, by, uh. At some stage, the, the returns that we were starting to, to, to generate, um, were actually needed to be mentioned to, to, to investors as PayPal being a public company. So yes. it, it changed a bit. And I think toward, towards, uh, the end of my, my, uh, my time there, when I decided to, to go off and do gravy, I think, uh, motivations were, were, you know, getting a little bit more financial than they had been at the beginning. Is that part of the reason why you left? Were you feeling bored? No, I think. Now, the reason I left is I, I, I liked, I, look, I enjoy investing. I still do it now, um, you know, through a couple of funds, I LP in and advise, but I didn't want to do it full time. I really missed the startup. I wanted yeah. to go back and do a startup. And I always had a long-term plan. Like the reason, one of the reasons I joined or started the ventures team was I wanted to learn what it felt like sitting on the other side of the table, because I always knew I wanted to do this. So I'd raise money with other companies. I wanted to raise money for this company, but I wanted to do it even better by learning how VCs operated so I could, you know, do, do a better job than I had in the past. Yeah. It's an unusual trajectory for folks to start off early in their career in VC and then flip to do startup founding. I have a friend who, you know, in hindsight says he did it strategically, who knows why they just got the job and fell into VC, but he did work in VC for like seven years and then started a company that's going well now. And I do think you gain a few major advantages, especially when trying to raise money. One is just the oversight to see what the market trends are, to see what's not only what the opportunities in the market practically are, but what investors tend to tend to be excited about, which are yeah. two related, but but distinctly different things. And then there's also the actual art of raising money. You know, the network effect yeah. that you have from knowing enough people, just how you craft emails, how you build a deck, how you convey the enthusiasm when pitching. And it is like, it's like, you know, it's like being on the, uh, is being on the, being on the other side when you're trying to do a deal. It's like it's kind of a secret. It's a hack. It's yeah. I mean, look, just, I saw thousands of pictures, right? Yeah. I, uh, while I was there, so I, I could see what was working, what wasn't working. Um, I always say, you know, I sat on boards, a lot of, um, different companies. So I could, I could see what worked from a board perspective and really like, you know, uh, Pick, picking a VC or being picked with a VC, it's a two-way thing, right? You're, you're, you're taking money from a firm or an in, individual at a firm that you're going to be closely associated with for the next five to eight years. So like, it's, uh, it's a, you know, it's a bit like a marriage. Like you're going to be seeing this person all the time. You're going to be going through good times and bad times together. So actually picking the right VC for you, um, is really important. And now something became very clear. I wanted to make sure that people we could work together with going forward, whatever, however well or badly it went. Yeah. 
Yeah, this is uh, th- th- just your your general disposition is something I can tell that you've been through this enough times to have the attitude that it's like founder's choice. Because th- mm-hmm. like, th- I tell me if you disagree, but I feel the first thing an investor thinks of when they get approached is where's the prize? Like, can this person go and raise money without me or do they mm-hmm. need me? Because many mm-hmm. founders you meet will think, I need to raise money. I need to get money in the bank account. We're running out of money or even get the better side of this would be we have an opportunity to grow. We need money. And we just got to talk to enough investors and convince one of them, hopefully that they'll give us money. And then the, the experienced founders, like I got to go around and decide who I want to take money from. And, mm-hmm. and it's, and it's more, it's a more, um, it's a higher level of self-respect and self-appreciation on the founder's behalf, which is, it's not, it's not intuitive because you need mm-hmm. money to operate. And if you don't get it, you die. And these guys yep. sitting in these, these big, big, you know, tables at these fancy VC firms have the money. You got to convince them. But it's like, it's not how it is. You know, they have to deploy that capital. Uh, you know, it's like part of their job to deploy it. So I, it's I a pun- yeah, it's a partnership. It's yeah. Much as a, and you've got to view it as a partnership because, you know, once you've got the money, that's great. But then after that, you, you know, picking a VC is actually going to help you beyond money is hugely important. Like there are so, they often say it's like really lonely to be a CEO because it is like, are you supposed to talk to, right? And mm-hmm. what's going on? You can talk to the people who work with you, but you're still the boss, right? So you're still the person who's got to, you know, show the positivity and, and make those decisions. And then, you know, I, I, you know, when I was going through the venture stuff, I spoke to loads of CEOs who just wanted someone to talk to. Mm-hmm. Really, they really wanted to, like, I have this idea, I have this problem. And like, that's why some of these um, summits or conferences where it's just like the, the founders and CEOs are so important because the, there's so many therapy sessions, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, this happened, is this normal? Mm-hmm. And you get that also from a very good VC, and especially a VC who's done it before themselves. So they've been part of a startup or they've been involved with a the startup. They've you know, seen these problems, they've seen what works, what doesn't work. And being able to have that conversation is really, really valuable. So how many different concepts did you iterate through when you were going through kind of the tail end of your experience at PayPal Ventures? Did you, maybe better way to ask this, what was the process for identifying the business model? Were you writing things down in the board, iterating through customer calls or research, or did you just like lightning strikes and this is it? Yeah, look, I've been doing payments, as I said before, since 1997. So like it was, for me, this whole company was born out of pure frustration. I just started getting annoyed with how slowly things were moving. And I, so it was a case of like, what is broken? Like, how is this so hard? Why is it so hard for like a merchant or a retailer to go and add a payment time? Why is it taking eight months? Why is like some of these new cool bits of payment functionality never get deployed in the, in the wild? And and it's just like fintech's moving at this speed and the people who need to adopt it are moving at fintech are probably moving at half the speed and that doesn't make sense. So that was, that was where I first in. I just said, look, okay, I'm going to go and talk to some people about what's going on here. How, why is this happening the way it's happening? Where's the problem, frankly? And, and, it, and it, the problem is the payments team. And that's what we saw very clearly. It's not the individuals. They're lovely. They're fantastic people. It's the fact that every retailer merchant in the world has a payments team and they have it because you start and you do an integration to Stripe or something similar. And six months later, you go and add PayPal and then you go and add a firm and then you go international. And 
99% of merchants are doing this by basically plugging more and more stuff in and adding people to that team. And it just grows and grows and grows. And I talk to some really large, you know, retailers now, fifth teams of 300 engineers working on payments. And I'm like, the crazy thing here is they're all building the same thing. They're essentially all building a big router as it was kind of used then, but really now it's known as payment orchestration that routes payments where they need to route them based on the criteria that their business needs. And, and so I saw this gap I'm like, let's just build that. Let's build that tool that does that thing. And then let's not become a payment processor and let's start doing any of that. Let's build a tool. Let's give that tool to retailers and allow them to just move quicker because that will be good for pretty much the whole ecosystem, but also everybody needs it. So when you define this concept of the uh, payments orchestration, what are the boundary conditions? Where are the endpoints? If I'm a team of 200 people, if I, a payments team of 200 people at a company, what are the endpoints in which the orchestration is occurring? You like, do you have the end bank account of the company, which money's being deposited in? And then yeah. is it just all the API endpoints of all the Stripe sprints? Yeah, so think, think about something like an integration. There. So the pa payment orchestration is a, is a broad church nowadays. Right. So lots of people say they do payment orchestration. I think you can sort of, you know, everybody did cloud before, right? <laughs> just to become a term. But I think for us, we view ourselves as an integration layer um, and a logic layer that sits above all of the payment companies that you want to work with. So we connect to a hundred plus unique payment types around the world um, and payment companies like Braintree's and the Stripes and the Adians, but also the cool stuff like, so we, you know, we do some of the crypto stuff. We do weird and wonderful wallets around the world. We do open banking, real-time payment type, type stuff, et cetera. So that's out the back. And we, what we've done is we give the merchant a tool and that tool allows them to, and, and plugs into their checkout if they want to, um, and basically allows that merchant to go and add a new payment type, a product manager or a finance person can go into our no-code middleware, add a new payment type, click, go, press deploy, and it's live. And it updates the front end, the back end, the middleware, standardized the reports across all the different payment types. And that really allows them to experiment on. And this is down, you know, you know, crypto is a great example. Like I've spoken to hundreds of merchants who say, look, I'd love to see what happened if we, you know, allow Bitcoin on our website, but I can't afford eight months of engineering roadmap just in case. Like when's no one uses it or the volume's tiny, like I can't afford to do that. With us, literally, they can go in, click a few buttons and be live in five minutes. If it gets adoption grave, they decide this ain't working, free clicks and it's off again. So it's, there's that, it just frees people up to experiment. It frees the ecosystem up to, to try new things and do different things. And for me, that was like one of the prime motivations to get this up is let's get things moving. Let's get things moving. And I think, you know, and there are many, you know, lots of people have talked about underserved over the years and getting, getting, you know, people who aren't necessarily got credit, et cetera. Um, to be served in their sort of financial ecosystem. But it just struck me during COVID while I was like dreaming this up that, you know, I'm at home or stuck in my apartment uh, ordering stuff online, but what would my life be like if I hadn't got a credit card, if I hadn't got a way to buy it? Like I would have sucked even more than a nut, right? <laughs> like I would have had to go out. I would have had to go stores. I would have had to, you know, deal with the day-to-day -day stuff that I certainly didn't f feel safe doing and, and, I was lucky enough to have good credit rating and all that kind of stuff. And there's a lot of people that don't. So freeing it up, allowing this innovation, allowing people to pay in different ways is good 
not only for the ecosystem, it's actually probably good for, for people generally. Yeah, interesting. And is it does it technically work where you're the end, you, like uh, Gravy will be the integrator of, say, Stripe, Braintree, all the payment gateways, and then the, cons- yeah. the customer or the merchant doesn't actually do touch any of those. They just touch you guys and then you'll like route out payments to all the different. Yeah, so the technically is exactly how it works. We don't touch the money, so they still need a contract with with uh, their gateways. Um, the money ultimately flows into in through, into the gateway and then into the merchant's owned bank account. So we don't want to get involved in the actual movement of money. Many reasons for that, but having set up a number of startups before, KYC compliance, all of that is a very human resourceful uh, part of a business and and not much fun. So by not touching the money and and having the merchants negotiate their own contract, it's, we can move quick and we can sign any retailer anywhere in the world. Um, but but secondly, like a large enterprise retailer, generally who we work with, is going to get a much better rate than I am from any PSV or bank they get. And so, would it be technically it's like a, a widget they're installing into their WordPress, Webflow, whatever website framework they're using, and then you're integrating with the payment gateway that they choose? Is that it's a little bit more complex than that? And that we're actually yes to say it, but we're actually a cloud company. So we, uh, we're not just a, a widget that plugs in and a SaaS. We actually spin our infrastructure for each of our retailers in a single tenancy mode. So for example, retailer A wants to, to spin up, um, to, to, to use gravy, we'll spin up an instance of gravy for them, um, in their local environment, in their local, uh, uh where, wherever they're hosting. We'll spin up gravy for them, that single tenancy. They're not sharing that with any other merchant. The data sticks within, you know, their ecosystem. Um, uh, you know, there's no, no data sharing. We're like we're very specific on how we built this. Um, it can be as redundant or as not redundant as they want it to be. Um, they can load balance. They can do all of that with gravy. So we look a little bit more like a sort of an AWS or a Google cloud than we do a payment company in that way. And that once that's spun out, the merchant has access to the widgets that they can install on, not on their website, um, but also it's able to link into that backend system as whatever they're using for reporting or into uh, a CRM or whatever they want to do there. So it's really is, is designed for the, uh, the sort of mid-size to large um, enterprise who's he's got more complex systems. Yeah, yeah. Th- those things you mentioned are certainly not like scaling up uh, cloud instances, CDN layers. I would imagine that's really going to be kind of an optimization layer that you're not going to face unless you're what, is it revenue over 100 million? Like, how do you think of that? Yeah, uh, 50 million and above. Yeah, yeah that's, that's kind of what we're kicking. Like my view is if you're, you know, selling cheese in Wisconsin to people in America, like Stripe's great, right. country's great. Right. You don't really need orchestration. I think when you get bigger, um, that's when you start thinking about redundancy, multiple PSPs, but actually more importantly, it's when you start thinking about international and things just instantly get more complicated with international. Like I, I could pro- probably, uh, think of, uh, 30 or 40 conversations I had with a large US retailer who said, oh, we're going to launch in Germany. And I'm like, okay, what payment types are you saying? Oh, credit cards. And I'm like, you do know that like 5% of Germans own credit cards, right? Wow. And it's like a tiny proportion. And so a lot of times a retailer will say, oh, we're going to launch international and just assume everybody pays the same way. They don't. They frankly don't. Like 
try and get a credit card in France, your credit limit is tiny because that's how French credit cards work. So wow. people pay in different ways in different markets. <laughs> do the market variants, is it by region, by country kind of? Do you, do you see like... English down to country. Like you would have thought Europe would all be the same. Yeah. Not. It really isn't. Um, like the UK looks a lot more like the US, except now they have open banking. Um, and then, uh, and then as soon as you get to France, Germany, et cetera, it's, it's very, very different, um, how people like to pay and what they pay. What are the factors that play into with the different methods that people like to pay with? Like, is it, does it ultimately flow upstream to regulation in some way or culture somehow? Like why would yeah, I mean, Germany have such low credit card usage? That's surprising. If you own crypto and leave it on the exchange where you bought it, like Coinbase, that is a mistake. We've heard the news lately. Exchanges closed, accounts frozen. We're learning the hard way that crypto on exchanges is not really in your control. So what can you do about it? Well, you can get a crypto wallet and control the crypto yourself. And that's why today's show is sponsored by ZenGo. These guys realize that storing Bitcoin and storing crypto yourself can be difficult. It's risky to keep private keys. They realized this and said there's got to be a better way. So they created a crypto wallet that is fully recoverable. So say goodbye to lost Bitcoins. And the security of this wallet is incredible. It's a hacker's worst nightmare. They use a three-factor authentication, including 3D biometrics, so no one can access your wallet except for you. And Zengo realizes that at different levels of the crypto journey, you have different needs. So they offer 27 support and have real people that are available to contact directly within the app. They have a bunch of different coins, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Tezos, and more, and they have all sorts of NFTs available as well. So now for the first time, you can keep your crypto safe with the same tools that the big guys have used for years. Download Zengo, that's Z-E-N-G-O, and use code ATC to get $20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. That's $20 back for your first purchase of $200 or more. Use code ATC and check out Zengo. After after the wars, um, Germany had a very strong aversion to credit because of the the downturn that happened. So, and it's still semi cultural in Germany that you, you don't borrow money. Um, so so it's uh, I think a lot of it came from there, um, and a lot of it comes from technology. I mean, they just had better banking systems, right? That, that allow real time movement. So. Now, people have been paying with their bank account in Germany ever since I've started in this business. Um, and they would prefer to do that than use a credit card. Like they would prefer just do a direct bank transfer and pay for an item. And it's the same in, in a number of different European countries. And it's that, and, and a number of countries that started a bit later, they just developed a local wallet that everybody just uses. So it just, it's partly cultural, it's partly evolution and, um, you know, in France, there's, there's regulation around how much money you can borrow on a credit card, et cetera. So it's, it's different things in different countries. But when you look at it, Europe's pretty complex. Go to Asia and it, it goes through the window, right? Like the hundreds of wallets, hundreds of banking payment systems. Um, and it's just, it's very complicated for a retailer who wants to sell a product into a, a, a market they're not in. They really need to, to be accepting local payment types. Otherwise, they're restricting who can buy from. Do you think this is a a pendulum swing? In other words, do you think we're, we've moved to this hyper-complex multivariate payment method globally where right now, I, I was looking at some numbers the, the other day on 
the number of people per week that are coming online is like in the millions. So it's still, there's just an absolutely explosive growth, especially with Starlink and people working from home, mm -hmm. cryptos, obviously like default, remote first, global first. Is this going to swing to a point where people across the world kind of say, well, it would be advantageous for us to move to one, maybe two payment methods. And there's kind of a li liquidity is much stronger. Like there tends to be a global reserve currency for a reason. We're not using mm -hmm. a thousand different currencies. International trade tends to happen on USD. Uh, crypto seems to present an opportunity where you could consolidate payment methods, yet it has yet to really take off. Do, do you see that as happening? Like I can't see it as sustainable when all of Asia uses thousands of different or hundreds of different payment methods, yet we're all on the same internet working for the same companies. I think things will, I think things will consolidate a little bit, but I don't think that much. Mm. And actually, if you look at it, it's increasingly just getting more complicated. So, you know, as better ways to pay appear or different ways to pay appear, you look at the rise of buy now, pay later, right? It, it was non-existent outside kind of Australia and probably some parts of Latin. And suddenly every, like there's hundreds, hundreds of companies doing buy now, pay later in different ways and different things. So I think technology has just allowed people to experiment a bit more with how they want to do things. Um, I don't think that's going to change. I mean, you go to India now, you don't, you don't carry card around with you. You carry your cell phone and you scan QR codes. That's how people pay in India. You go to, you go to Scandinavia and you don't take any cash out. You're never going to need it. No one even extends that. Like it's got, it's, it's things that have got to a point where it's just different in different markets and paying locally. And paying internationally might be two different things. And you've got to remember that we're kind of privileged because we get to travel, right? Lots of people don't. So why would you need an international payment type if you're not going to ever use it? So I think you will still, I mean, the card company is not going anywhere, right? And they're going to innovate and grow and change and do all the stuff they need to do. But you, I mean, at the moment, look, people love to bash the, you know, the credit card companies. It's like an old system that still works super well, like 99.999% of the time. And you know, if you've got a, a card in your wallet, you've got a good chance of paying wherever you are. Um, but do what, when I go and shop online, if there is a Google pay or a PayPal, I will always use that. It's just quick and simpler and, and, and easier for me. Yeah. Do you think, uh, do, are you, it sounds like you're pretty bullish on the continual dominance of Visa MasterCard. Is that I don't know it's dominance. I mean, you can already see it's shrinking, right? And it's working around debit. I think, I don't think it's going anywhere. I just think there will be alternatives. So, yeah. Do you see alternatives being decentralized as the primary competitive threat? Not primary. I think probably the primary competitive threat at the moment is, is real-time payments and open banking. I think like the ability to move money instantly for your bank account to someone you're buying stuff from is pretty disruptive. I mean, it's been happening in some places in Europe for a while. I've seen like in the UK, it's starting to get really good adoption um, because they, frankly, they've cracked the, the user experience a lot better than it was. It was just extremely painful before. Mm. And now it's down to literally fingerprint on your phone and off you go. You know, that, that kind of checkout is, is great and it's pretty secure uh, and it's a lot cheaper. So you're starting to see retailers realize that it's going to work well for them. And if they do it right, which is the biggest conversation I have with a lot of our retailers, like, yes, you're going to save money on perhaps a credit card processing fee, but don't just keep it all. Cause you also have to take part in trying to persuade people to, to do this, like what's in, what's in it for the consumer. 
And so if you start to introduce things to the consumer, like, you know, pay with this payment method and we'll give you, you know, gift card or we'll give you loyalty points or something like that, then you can start to influence consumer behavior. And I think that will, that will be very disruptive of it. To, to credit cards generally. Have you researched much or have any opinions on the trajectory of the, the credit bureaus? The structure in the United States being kind of an oligopoly of three companies to manage all the centralized, super important data, and they were hacked not that long ago. Uh, you know, hundreds of millions, I think, social security numbers leaked on the dark web. I don't know much about how it operates in other countries, but it certainly seems unsustainable, you know, to continue mm-hmm. to do it the way it currently exists. Maybe it's not a problem in other places if they don't have a desire for credit, but it seems like one of the most broken parts and under-discussed parts in payments. It's really broken and it's broken. I mean, look, I, I immigrated into the US, right? Um, and I, I came from the UK where, you know, I was, I was doing okay. And I got out here and I went to open a bank account and then like, that was hard work. And then once I'd found someone who'd opened a bank account, I tried to get a credit card. And uh, my wife spent the next six months laughing at me because the credit card they gave me was the same one she got when she was 16. She's a U.S. citizen. And she's like, I had a, I had to give them like $2,000 to get a $1,000 credit limit. And I'm like, how does this make sense? But, but it, and I'm like, why don't you just talk to like the people in the UK? Like I'm, I'm in my 40s, yeah. like I've got money like this. This doesn't make any sense. And they just, they don't talk to each other. Like the U.S. credit agencies don't talk to the U.K. credit agencies. They don't talk to the Indian credit agencies. So the whole model is very insular and doesn't really take into account the global mobility of people these days. Um, so that's the first side of it. And then the, the second side of it, I think it's just used for way too much. Yeah. Like I think that, I mean, a, a good example from the insurance world, right? So if you live in a, a poorer area, you're going to have a higher insurance premium, right? Purely based for courage, purely based on your credit rate. But it's been well documented that people who have less money look after their cars much better than people who have more money. So it makes no sense because everyone's like, oh, credit rating. We'll just use that. We use credit rating to work out how much your insurance is going to be. We use credit rating to work out all of this stuff. And it's just overused. And I think it's overused and it's used badly and it doesn't take into account like how people live their lives now, where they live their lives. And it definitely needs an overball. Um, and I think there's some opportunities in that. Do you think the reason why it's overused is that, to me, two things stand out. One would be that regulatory reasons prevent companies from gathering data that they would be able to use to make more intelligent decisions on pricing. So you have a, a massive like mm-hmm. pricing, uh, like misfire, you know, it's just like off from where it should be. Uh, and then the other thing would be the ability for people to contribute to that, to add more data. So like data pipelines are either aren't built out or, you know, I tend to think wherever there's opportunity, there's probably people working on it. If not, there's going to be tomorrow. Otherwise there's some regulatory or some fundamental structural reason why it doesn't exist. There's there's lots of people working on that. I mean, there are many people, I think for a period, um, you know, before, before everything that happened, uh, there were people looking at social data as a, a possibility to use in trying to work people out. Obviously that didn't go so well, um, <laughs> but, uh, but there, there are other, I mean, there's companies like, you know, Plaid and, and others in that space who are, you know, using banking data yeah. to actually start to identify things. Um, there, there are other companies looking at algorithms on, um, you know, how often you paid 
who's paying you, where are your jobs, all that kind of stuff. So I think there's more real-time data available um, and and being able to to build that. I mean, the, the advantage the credit agency have got is everybody's reporting to them. They're getting all of this data in and they have, you know, a large quantity of data, however good or bad you think it is. It's a lot of data. And when you have a lot of data, you can make better choices. So I think it's already starting to happen. You're starting to see some pretty cool startups looking at this space and say, look, there is other data out there that we can use and maybe make better decisions around what we're doing and how we're doing it. Do you see other countries set up their credit system structurally different than, than the U.S.? Where they're, are they all about the same? Most, most have done the same thing. Most have really done this sort of scoring mechanism. Um, I, I don't have... Everyone, yeah. every country I've worked on and anything similar has pretty much the same. And, and they're all, they're not the same like Experian, Equifax as they are. are they are, huh? Interesting. Wow. Many of them. Yes, many of them. And it seems like that, that whole system seems so off balance, you know, like it's, it, it is screaming for a better way to do it. I, does it have to be centralized? Like, I mean, it, well, that's the thing. That's some of the, some of the coolest stuff that's starting to say, look, yeah. maybe it's about self-reporting. self, re, self Yeah. Maybe it's about like, you, maybe you should own your own data, right? Mm. So you should be the one who gives access to um, uh, my employment records. I should be the one like saying, you know, say to my employer, you can give records to this, this company or import it. And then maybe it should sit on the blockchain. So if it sits on the blockchain, Maybe it sits in there where I, as an individual, own the keys. So if someone wants to rate me for an investment, I will give them like a temporary key to access the data on my blockchain um, for a period of time for this single purpose. You can put in a smart contract, all the rest of it, so you can go and see it. But ultimately, my data sits in, in the blockchain and is secured and updated and managed by me as an individual. I think a lot of people feel from a, pers- a privacy perspective, that might be the way forward. Um, so far, not not taken off, yeah. but, you know, logically makes sense. In 10 years from now, what do you think the the largest liquidity global reserve currency will be? Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, I, don't, I don't really know. I think these things are uh, interesting uh, stable coins yeah. coming out from government. And I think we'll probably be one of the, yeah. I don't know that the US one or someone else's one, they've got a bit of catch up to play it, but you're starting to see the digital euro, obviously China's making big moves of their currencies, their stable coin. Um, so I think, yeah, I think we will end up with a stable coin, probably a sovereign stable coin, a stable sovereign, yeah, sovereign stable coin. How, how much of uh, your attention now is spent on crypto? You mentioned you talk to some merchants who are interested in, in adopting it. Is it still on the fringe, practically speaking, from a business perspective, or is it like starting to become? We like, we like, I mean, we've integrated into um, a few different providers to, to provide, you know, the ability, merchant can switch it on. So, and try it. And really at the moment you see it, I mean, look, 
I view Bitcoin like gold. I don't think that's anything revolutionary. I don't spend my Bitcoin. I, I sit on it and pray it's going to go back up again. <laughs> I do with it. Uh, but I, I don't, I don't have any interest in using Bitcoin to buy anything. Um, generally for me, it's a, it's a savings investment. And I think a lot of people view it like that. Is there another currency that, or maybe it sounds like lightning that, that, that would, uh, be more, readily used day to day. I think the friction's just a bit high at the moment of loading up your wallet and even you know, friction's even higher in taking money out of your wallet. Um, so I think at the moment it doesn't really make sense with the way that the, the cryptocurrencies are set up to be a day to day buying. I wouldn't buy my milk with cryptocurrency right now. Right. Um, but I think it's close and I think it will get to a point where it's closer and it's, it's about user adoption. It's also a bit too complicated for the average date like my grandmother. <laughs> she wouldn't use it. So it just there need there needs there's still a bit of a gap to get it into a generally this is easy for everybody to use, um, as easy to use as cash or as, as easy to use as maybe a debit card, then I think it starts getting it. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when my grandmother would not use the internet. She would just only go in person to the banks, which I think is the only reason the banks even exist in person anymore. Um what area, what verticals are you seeing the most growth from it within the merchant segments? Like what, what is from behind the scenes, what's, what's working? What are people, what are the general trends you're seeing for, for, what area? for, for growth in merchants? Like, is there certain categories or industries, or I think of like e-commerce, for instance, massively grew during the early part of the pandemic. But I think even now Shopify CEO uh, has publicly admitted a mistake and hiring too many people and then having to lay them off because the retraction back to in-person transactions mm -hmm. was higher than they expected. So I'd almost say, yes, that's kind of an interesting trend. Um, I, there seem, yeah, but it's always, it's always done that though. So it's always like, if you look at e-commerce, it's always going through mm. bumps. Like everybody likes to do the up and right slide on the yeah. but it's always done like up and up and down stuff. And I think look at everybody was stuck at home. People are now going back to the stores. Uh, in some case, but I think a lot, what COVID has done is a whole generation that was kind of adverse to it. So they talked about your grandmother earlier. So another generation that hadn't tried internet shopping, didn't see any reason to use it. And during COVID had to, and realized it wasn't that bad. So I, you know, I, I have the sort of older relatives who now they shop online. They never shopped online before COVID and they, they're fine with it. They're actually quite happy with it. So I think the Generally, the, the, the people who are shopping online has gone up. I think there's mixtures of people not spending as much money now. Perhaps some people are, like to go back. It's more that people were buying stuff at home because they had nowhere else to spend their money during COVID. And now you, restaurants are back open, cinemas are back open, gigs are happening again. Like you, some of your capital that you were just buying stuff for your house at the time, you're now putting back to things you did before. So I, I, I think overall, it's still grown and it's still grown. It will still keep on growing. I think you see Europe and North America contracting a little bit on e-commerce, but you look at Latam and Asia, it's still growing very, very quickly. So I, I'm still bullish. Like we're, that's where we're going. Yeah. We we'll still keep on going that way. We will keep on going that way. And we just walk down like, a, you know, your local high street or shopping area now, you'll still see loads of stores with the windows closed up, et cetera. And I don't think they're coming back. I think. I think these, they're not going to be places you shop. They're going to be much more entertainment. Yeah. Any particular parts of the world or countries that you feel are 
on the rise or maybe underappreciated from an economic development perspective. Obviously, China is a is a major one that people talk about, undisputed yeah. growth there. But are there certain parts of, uh, you know, it seems like Asia, Africa, South America are the areas that we're trying to figure out or largely see how they enter the world scene economically? Yeah, I mean, I like uh, the, the two that always get ignored are Korea, South Korea. Like everybody always ignores South Korea. It's a huge market. And like, I don't know if you- I've you've been there. Been, yeah, my wife's Korean. Yeah. Direct, you connect to the internet. You're like, holy yeah. crap, that's what the internet yeah. has to feel like. Yeah. It's like incredibly fast, very efficient. Like it's super connected and it's a great market. We always gets ignored. And then, um, and then like, Africa is one of those, like most people don't realize there's 18 million people in Nigeria. It is a huge, huge country of very well educated, good universities, very technical, um, you know, great engineers with technical skills and it's a huge, huge market where again gets totally ignored. And, um, and, uh, I think you'll start to see some of these, I mean, already look at uh, FinTech in Nigeria is, is on. Yeah. Yeah. Hugely. And, and the great of that. I think. And then, and Latin. Yeah. Of course, I, I, the only reason I know this is my last business had, we would work with people in Nigeria. Nigeria is 210 million people or 200 and it's, oh, I think by the end of the year, it's, yeah, which is to put it in perspective, the United States is what, 330. So they're like pretty close to two thirds the size of the U.S., which is insane. And I yeah. think it's just a matter of organization, getting it, basic infrastructure to a point where the average person can contribute to society or, you know, gain access to the internet in a peaceful way where they can learn and earn. It's like, yeah, it's a pretty, I just can't think. It feels like a time in history where if you take the number of people coming online, the technological services to work together online, AR, VR, AI, crypto, psychedelics, to sprinkle it all together. And it's like, it just feels like a really special time. Obviously I'm biased, right? We're, we're all biased because we're all just alive now and haven't been before, but I don't know. I just repeatedly get this sense that it's just, just this, I mean, a wild time to be alive. Oh, I used to remember that you just look at the growth of it and it's funny, like, um, you know, the growth of technology. Like I was talking to my grandmother before she died and she's like, this is incredible. Like, you know, she was a physicist, but she was brought up in a, in a house in the UK with eight brothers and sisters with no electricity and an outdoor toilet. And you think like, where, where we, where she was before she died, she was like on the internet, she's doing all this stuff and that, and it's still doing that. Like it's just growing and growing and changing, changing. Funny payments were one of the things that never changed, right? Payments like pretty much until the credit card hadn't changed for hundreds of years. And then the credit card was about it. Um, and then suddenly in the like, last 20 years, it's gone poof, and exponential, like just how people pay for stuff went through the roof and catch up, I think, really with the rest of technology. Yeah. Do you think that was some overlook or some, it would seem that early on in the internet days, like PayPal obviously is the big story, but was, were payments overlooked for some fundamental reason or do you think? I don't know. I'm, I'm pretty old. I remember like having a, you know, my internet through, a, a, you know, I had to list the dialer off the yeah. phone and plug it into the modem and you know, like you paid through your, you know, your uh, telephone bill. Yeah. You, that's how you pay items. So you never buy anything expensive because yeah. it looks like you're going to get a telephone bill at none. So yeah, absolutely. Like when I, when I started in 1997, 
you know, people were trying to sell stuff online and had no real way to do it. It was horrible. And we kind of hacked the credit card system and made it work to the internet and all the rest of it. And that's where it started, right? We, you knew this, the only way it was going to be successful if people could pay for stuff. That was the only way the internet it was, it was great as a source of information and all the, the dream around that. But if this was going to be standard and everybody was going to have the internet at home, it needed to be able to accept money. And we saw that right. If you weren't working in payments and you had all the money that you could ever want, what would you, what would you spend your time doing? Um, yeah, so I, funny enough, I have my, I have a degree in marine biology and I have a, a love of the sea and everything to do with that. So I'd probably go and do something like that. fact, like it, it really depresses me how much plastic mm. pumping into the ocean and the state of the reefs and all the rest of it. So, you know what, if I had as much money as I needed, I would go in and work on that nonprofit to try and try and help, help the seeds get bit. Nice. Well, hey, you're a young guy. Hope, uh, gravy pays off and you can sure. do that. <laughs> any any particular people books podcasts youtube channels that stand out as places you've been inspired or have learned from over the years i read a hell of a lot of sci-fi you it drives my wife matt like why can't you just read something else what do you read what do you like <laughs> but i i will oh I, I there's a whole group of sort of manchester based uk science fiction writers people like neil stevenson and you know ian m banks etc that that kind of started that so that's kind of space operas i would call them so i think the expands but i i just i read those books and non-stop and i'm always looking for new ones i kind of i've always been very heavily influenced by sci-fi and the ideas and that and i think that's why i ended up in technology frankly because uh, i was trying to work towards a world where you know we had flying cars and all that kind of stuff so that really came from from reading sci-fi i watch it non-stop and my wife's not sitting next to me and wants to watch something else I'll, I'll be watching sci-fi i'll be reading sci-fi it's it's uh, probably an addiction. <laughs> what do you think of what do you think of Dune? I oh yeah, it's a classic. classic. Yeah, one of my favorite. Yeah, sorry, I've read it probably eight or nine. Yeah, um, whole whole series. Uh, I actually liked the original movie. So yeah, it's got eight or nine <laughs> times. God, it's a it's a fat book. And for people who haven't seen it in yeah. person, it's like I don't know how many pages. Oh, and then it's the it's the first of many as well. Yeah, sorry, it's a, that's awesome. <laughs> that's fun, man. Uh, John, thanks so much, man. This was a really fun time chatting with you. I guess know you heard about your progress at Gravy. Where are you personally on the internet? Are you actively tweeting or writing anywhere? Um, I don't write as much as I used to. I've been busy with this startup thing. Um, but yeah, no, you can find me on LinkedIn. You, you probably, uh, find me mainly LinkedIn is, is what I, I tend to stick to. I do tweet every so often. I just don't have as much time to do that, but Come and find me. I like to talk to people about sweet. John Lund. Appreciate it, buddy. All right. Talk great. Thanks for your time. Thank you for listening to Around the Coin. If you enjoyed the show today, consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts, tweet about it, or text it to a friend. We really appreciate all the support and growing that we can. If you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us, don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you. 
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.